Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Let's do this. Genesis 43 verse 15 is where I left off. So we, we're in the life of Joseph all the way to the end of Genesis, okay? And uh, here we've been in this process, this story with Joseph, where now things are coming to fulfillment in his life. Uh, his brothers have come to Egypt. They have sought uh, supplies. They have sought food during the time of the famine. They have taken one round back to their father, but of course there's this whole interaction and it's weird to them. They don't understand really what's happening other than they've encountered a very important person in Egypt. They do not know it's their brother and in their interactions with him, he was somewhat favorable towards them, but also stern with them, questioning them. Now he's kept one of their brothers. They've returned home. They've told their dad, look, we, we brought food back, but Simeon, he's in Egypt. And if we go back, we got to have Benjamin with us. Jacob, of course, is like, why did you do this? Everything is against me, right? You remember this? Jacob's saying, everything's against me. And as we considered last week, it's important for us to, to, to remember that, that oftentimes in our life, when it seems like all of the circumstances are in fact against us, it could be that God is moving in those very moments to bring about something wonderful in our lives. And that is certainly going to be the case for, for Jacob. And so they went through the process of telling their dad, look, we've, we've got to go back. He's reluctant to let Benjamin go. Finally, they get to the place where he says, you've got, you got to go back. You've got to get food. Reuben's not of right mind. Judah steps forward and says, look, if we go back, we have to bring Benjamin. But, and I'm paraphrasing, dad, I'm, I'm going to bring him home. It's, go, it's going to be okay. I, I swear it on my life. Whatever, if, if something happens, it's on me. But you've got to let us go because there's no other way we can do this. If we go back to Egypt without him, we're done for. And so Jacob finally comes to a place where he effectively says, you go and I'll trust God that he's going to take care of this. Right? So now we pick up, and, and as they've sent them, Jacob at least says, okay, you go, but, but take these supplies with you as a gift. Let's at least do our due diligence here to make sure that we're appealing to this man uh, in the best way possible. So they've gone back. We pick up here in Genesis uh, chapter 43, verse 15, and we read, So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand. So they're going to try and make up for, if necessary, the money that was sent back with them. And they arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph, and when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. So this, this interaction as they return to Egypt should bring back to memory for us the state that these brothers are in. And, and that is that they are in a state of unrepentant sin. While these men certainly feel guilty for what they had done to their brother many years ago, at this point, uh, 22 years beforehand, they had not yet been able to truly reconcile this event. They had not gone to their father and, and in honesty told him what had happened. They, they didn't know that at this point Joseph was alive, so they certainly hadn't had the opportunity to uh, ask for forgiveness from him. They had recognized, and Joseph had overheard them, that they felt guilty about it. They knew that they were wrong, and so Joseph has, in many respects, speculation certainly, but I think it's fair speculation, what he's been doing with them has been intended to some degree to, to find them out, to, to feel them out, to see, are these guys changed? 
Is my dad really alive? Is my younger brother really alive? Are these, are these guys, have they, have they changed at all? Or are they the same brothers that they were? That they're going to lie, they're going to cheat, they're going to do what they need to do to survive. And so these various tests, and we'll see more of them uh, happen here in our study tonight, are going to be in many respects Joseph testing them, figuring out where are they at? Has, has their character changed? And so we see with these men who have yet to truly make things right that they are living in fear. And that's the principle that we started to uncover last week that really carries us all the way through the end of Genesis in chapter 50 is that, that unrepentant sin causes fear and paranoia. We see that consistently. It, even people that, that you meet and and I had an opportunity to meet with someone today. They may even be watching online right now. If, if you are, you know this is you, and I'll, I'll keep it confidential. But, um, but, but in that interaction, it was so amazing that, that they began to share with me some things about their life over the, over a, a, the last several months. And, and, and really what, 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 the, what they were doing was, was sharing, hey, hey, here's some areas of sin in my life. That I just needed to tell, I needed to, I needed to confess it, I needed to share it. And for them, as they did, and not just with me, but others, I was one of a handful of people that they just wanted to talk with. They kept expressing, I just feel free. I just feel so good. Like, I, I, you know, obviously I'm not defending some of the things that I've done, but at this point in my life, I'm just ready to just move beyond this because I've been in prison. And, and I sat there with them and they began to talk to me about how just the, the events and the things that they had kind of been harboring in their life, well, they began to tell me about how it was truly beginning to change how they acted, how they lived, how they interacted with people, um, their thought process. Uh, just, it, it, and he began to describe fear, paranoia, uh, lack of sound thinking. Remember last week we... And here again, we're talking about the fear and paranoia on the part of these brothers. But, but remember Reuben coming to his dad, and, and he's not thinking clearly. I mean, he, he comes to his dad, and he's trying to figure out a way to go back to Egypt. And he basically says to his dad, if, if we take Benjamin and, and, and we don't come back, you can, you can kill my sons. And it's just like, what are you thinking? Well, you're, you're not. Your thinking's distorted. Sin distorts even our thinking. And, and I shared with, with this individual just a little bit of our, our study this past week and my preparation for this evening, and I just said, yeah, you know, unrepentant sin really brings fear and paranoia. And they said, yes, it does. And it distorts your thinking. It was a real-life example sitting before me. And of someone now who was saying, praise God, I'm just free from this. I'm done. And so, again, unrepentant sin causes fear and paranoia. Now, if you are experiencing fear or paranoia in your life, does it mean that there is unrepentant sin? No, not necessarily. It, it's the unrepentant sin that can lead to this, but isn't necessarily, hey, if this is in my life, it's because of this. But, but here's what I would say. Fear, paranoia, anxiety, we do know this much. Those things are are not from God. They're not from God. Rest assured. Where do they come from? What do they come from? What does that come from? Could it be unrepentant sin? Yes, I think we see biblical examples of that, certainly. It could also be like Jacob, that it's coming from a place of, of lack of, of, of trust in God. Jacob wasn't in a place of unrepentant sin. But Jacob was in a place where he had experienced so many things in his life and a good bit of loss that he was struggling to be able to truly trust God. For these men, here at this point, a feast was being prepared for them. But they're afraid. They're standing outside the door, and, and what's inside is blessing. And, and they're unable at this point to, to see or even to expect that because this fear and anxiety is causing them to, to worry, to doubt, to uh, assume, and then to start to, to, to take action too. And a lot of times when we take action in that state, we do stupid things. And we'll, we'll look at that here shortly. 
And so when we see stuff like this, and as we consider this, this narrative that's before us, I think it's important here, even at the beginning, and, and we'll ask this to some degree, guys, I mentioned this last week, we're going to be asking this question. The Lord's going to allow us to deal with this topic really through the end of the study, because this goes all the way to, through to Genesis 50. So it'll take us a few more weeks of this. But, but to be willing to sit here and to say, okay, what about me? Is there an element of fear, paranoia, anxiety in your life? Are you willing to ask the question of why, Lord? Lord, why, what is that? And, I, and I've often found that when we ask why long enough, when we ask why and we get that first answer and we then say why again and get another answer and a why and a why and a why and we keep peeling back those layers that we often get to a place where, like Jacob, we find, I'm really just struggling to trust God. That, that either, yes, there is an area of unrepentant sin in my life and the Lord exposes that, or to the other side of that, I'm really struggling when it boils down to it to say, Lord, I, I trust you. With whatever it is, maybe it's a circumstance, maybe it's a, it's a loved one, it's a, it's, it, maybe it's, it's just, to, Lord, to really trust your word, to trust that you, what your word says is true and that I can live in light of that, that in fact your grace is enough that the work is finished on the cross, that I don't need to work harder to earn this, but that when you say I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. Whatever the case may be, for us to, to, to be willing to go to that place and to say, okay, these things are here because at the end of it all, I'm not, I'm not yet at a place of trust. I'm not yet maybe even perhaps entering our Sunday study at a place of surrender. Or I'm really willing to go, okay, Lord, here, here's my life. So for these men, they're still in that place. Verse 19, they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house and they talked with him at the door of the house. And so this is where it starts, right? They could enter in trusting, hey, we're okay. But because of the fear and the paranoia, they stop there and they begin the, the, the explanation, right? The, 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 the fear that can then cause us to be defensive or preemptive because we're now attempting to manage the situation. This is one of those moments for these men as they arrive at Joseph's house where they're like, so, so you see what happened was, as they start to try and explain what's going on. We, we get home and there's this money here and we don't know really how, but we're really good guys. Remember I told you we're really good guys and so now we're back and we got double the money and they are ready to just tell him everything they need to tell him. And, and we too can then try to cover, we can try to explain, we can try to do these different things to make ourselves feel better in this moment. Instead, what we probably need to do in that moment is just to say, here's the truth, and the truth will set me free. What would have happened if in this moment they expressed their fear and the root of it, if they went to this man and they said, look, we're terrified right now. You've been very good to us, but we are in fear. And here's the reason we're in fear. It just went through that whole process. There may be consequences sometimes when the truth is, is shared. But again, it sets you free. Now we start to see this play out a little bit. They do start to express more. They start to become more transparent. And we see then the, the blessing that comes from that. Verse 20, and, and so they said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and so we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food, and we do not know who put our money in our sacks. And so they do start to tell him. I mean, they're getting some things out there that are causing issues for them, but as we'll see, it's not until the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, where they're really going to just get everything out. But, but they're starting here. And so he said, verse 23, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. What a blessing in this moment. As they begin to just sort of get this stuff out, here, Simeon's return to them. So, so they see Simeon here, and no doubt Simeon's like, where you been? Right? Did you guys forget about me? And they're like, dad, you know, and he wouldn't, and who knows? Who knows what's happening? I can only imagine that. Uh, and so here's a, here's a blessing. So now they're, now they're going to be able to go in, but, but, but what a wonderful thing when he says, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. 
And guys, again, we've got to bring this back to practical application for us. When we are in a place of fear, paranoia, anxiety, we've got to check that. We've got to be willing to go, Lord, this isn't from you. It's not you. What does your word say? Well, depending on your translation, your Bible says, do not fear or fear not 365 times. Sounds like a good daily reminder, doesn't it? This is why when we find that we are in fear, we must dig in to why. Because again, it's not to be overstated. Fear is not from Him. Now, don't let this be a condemnation. If you find yourself saying, I'm I'm struggling in this area, well, don't be condemned, no. Because condemnation is not from Him either. But at least let it be something that prompts you to say, Lord, why do I fear? What's causing this, Lord? Would you show this to me? Would you reveal this to me? Because the answer can lead you to freedom. So again, now Simeon's back with them. So verse 24, the man brought, uh, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Now we're going to see, guys, that, that truly they have no idea who this man is. And here they are, they're back. Every trip into Egypt is, is a is indeed a trip. <laughs> it's like, what is going on here? And now he gets home and they're here. So they're coming back thinking, oh, we got to come back for food. We might die. Our brother's taken hostage. We're bringing our younger brother. We don't know exactly how this is going to go. We're going to do our best to give a gift to, to try and get this transaction done. And now we're going into the guy's house. We're having dinner. And he gets home and he says, how are you? Right? How's your well-being? And, and certainly, because of fear of paranoia, some of them may be thinking, like, maybe Benjamin's like, this guy's pretty cool. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Right? Because he's with them for the first time on this trip. Maybe he's like, oh, my older brothers. Gosh. But the other ones are like, he's going to kill us. Right? <laughs> How's your well-being? We're dead. You know? I, <laughs> right? How's that old man you speak of? Like, oh, gosh. He remembered. Uh, I don't know what's going through their minds. And so... But, but for Joseph here, they're all back, and here's his little brother. Now, remember, th- this is uh, the family dynamics at this time. Uh, we don't know how all of that worked out, but, but for him, there was a special connection. Right? This was his younger brother that was born of Rachel, who was likely pretty young when, when he left. And to just see him, and now to also see his brothers bowing down before him again, He's learning of his father's well-being. His dad's alive. No doubt he dearly missed him. This has got to be a bit overwhelming. And so here then, verse 29, he lifts his eyes. He sees his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he says, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, he looks to Benjamin and says, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. And so this, so this pushes him over the edge, right? So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. He went into his chamber and wept there. I mean, this is a moment where it's almost as if he sort of looks around and he's like, I gotta, I gotta get the heck out of here. Now, it certainly wouldn't have made sense for these men uh, if Joseph had begun to weep right there. Even more so probably would have made it like, we're dead. Right? <laughs> Again, okay, this guy is... This guy is not all there, <laughs> and he is all over the place emotionally, and we are really scared. So it, it would have been odd for, for him to weep in such a way in front of them, no doubt. It might have been also, from Joseph's perspective, like not cool in front of his employees, if you will. I mean, just everything about it. So he has to get away. But this tells us, I mean, praise the Lord, in this narrative, we have a sense of just the emotion that he's experiencing, because certainly I can't describe it. Such that, verse 31, he washed his face, so he's got to kind of clean himself up. He restrained himself, and he said, serve the bread. <laughs> so he sort of gets his composure back, and he's like, all right, let's, let's have this meal. So they set him a place by himself, 
and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So literally, in whatever dining room this is, there is a table for Joseph's brothers, the Hebrews, who are, you are a different race, you're a different religion, you're a different language, you are, we're not, we're not doing this. We're not going to eat with you. Then you've got a table for Joseph's, uh, his, his camp. And then because of Joseph and his position of power, he's by himself. What a, what a dinner party, right? <laughs> How fun is that? <clears throat> so he's sitting over there by himself, you know, thinking through all this stuff. And now some people ask, well, what, what, they knew Joseph was a Hebrew. But at this point, yes, they did. And Joseph seems to have always given credit to the um, the one true God, but at the same time, he's now, he's in a position of power, he's, he's likely dressed like an Egyptian, he's married to an Egyptian, he's been in Egyptian culture for 20 plus years, um, it seems as if in many respects, he's adapted to some of these things, and so they sit before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, it means they sat them in order by age, and the men looked in astonishment at one another as they're sitting there at the table and going, did you just see what happened? Like, are you guys picking up on the fact that they just sat us by birth order? So they're even more freaked out now because they're like, how do they know this? How do they know these things? And then he took servings to them from before him. So they go and they, and they start to serve it up. And they come around to Benjamin, who who Joseph has already said, like, you got to bring the younger brother, for one. And then when he gets there, he's like, God bless you. I mean, there's clearly some level of visible emotion when he sees him. And now as they're serving up dinner, he scoop for you, scoop for you, and they get to Benjamin, and they go, one, two, three, four, five. Is that not weird? I mean, an extra helping I've been known to take, right? We had lunch with somebody on Sunday. They were like, would you like one or two? And I'm like, I mean, is that like a legitimate option? Is there enough for everybody? I'll take two, sure. Right? Uh, but five? <laughs> Can you put five on there for me, please? Like that would seem excessive. So they're looking at this. And again, it's just like, man, what, what is happening here? So he took servings to them before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. And so they drank and were merry with him. Now for Joseph, this is important here because he's watching all this go down. And probably for Joseph, he's thinking, watch this. They're going to freak out. We're going to put five on his plate. And just like they were with me, they're going to start just getting frustrated and they're going to give him the evil eye. And they're going to be like, dude, give me some of your food. And this is ridiculous. And you always get the best stuff. To some degree, this is perhaps what Joseph is thinking. I'm going to see now that they treated him the way they treated me. But they don't. They're just like, praise the Lord. We're eating. They just move on. Despite the fact that Benjamin's got like a pile of food on his plate. And, and maybe they're still stuck on the fact that he sat them by their age. Maybe they're still trying to figure that one out. Because for some of you math whizzes out there, I am not one. Uh, for them to have been set at the table by age just by chance, is a mathematical probability of just shy of 40 million to one. So it seems unlikely. <laughs> and so again, time in Egypt been very strange. So, so for them, again, here's this, this principle at work. Though their unrepentant sin, causing a bit of fear of paranoia, they're, they're now in his house. They're, they're experiencing blessing, but yet, like, what, what is going on? They're astonished. They're confused. And I think to some degree, this is also unveils another principle for us, that, that even when we are in unrepentant sin and it causes fear and paranoia in, in our lives, it does not stop here. And this, let's look at this case for a moment. It didn't stop here, the one that God had appointed to save them from continuing to pursue them, to pursue reconciliation, to give them a place at his table. Does that sound familiar? That even when we are in a place of unrepentant sin and fear and paranoia is affecting our lives, that it doesn't stop the one who cares for and loves us to continue to come after us and to pursue us and to bless us with a seat at his table and to cause us to go, what, what five helpings? Really? Why? Because I love you. Because that's what grace is. 
It's unmerited. You don't deserve it, but here you are. And so how about we just get all the junk out, right? How about we, just, we, we get all this stuff that's causing fear and paranoia in your life. How about you just get it out so that we can get on with having a right relationship? And so he then, as we move on here, chapter 44, verse 1, and he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So he's added again. And then verse 2, he says, And also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So what we see here then is Joseph hatches another plan. Now why is he doing this? Well, again, we can only speculate, but it certainly seems that that this is yet another test to truly see has the character of these men changed? He saw them at dinner. That seemed to go well. The extra servings for Benjamin didn't seem to throw them off. They didn't seem to be bothered by it. Now he's sending them out, and he's going to see, okay, we're going to catch him, and this is going to implicate Benjamin, and I'm going to see how they handle this one. Are they just going to hang him out to dry? Would they sacrifice their younger brother once again? Were they indeed changed men. Now before we continue on with the story, some of you may have honed in on this word divination, and I'll just head this one off at the pass right now before I get an email tomorrow asking about this particular one. Divination. Here it says, in terms of how Joseph has instructed them, go and you're going you're gonna to say this to them, isn't this the cup that he practices divination with? And so a lot of people do ask this question, like, wait a second, Joseph seems like he's been like this upright guy, this good guy, but yet is this like witchcraft kind of thing that's going on? And it is, at least within the Egyptian culture, would have been a, a pagan practice, pagan divination. And, and it is, in fact, condemned in Scripture. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 18, verse 10, as well as in 1 Samuel, in chapter 15, verse 23. And using objects then, such as this, for attempting to discern God's will was largely forbidden. So do we see here, in fact, that Joseph is, is engaging in this particular practice? Maybe. Remember that in narrative, the news is reported. It's not doctrine. Okay? So if, in fact, Joseph were, it doesn't somehow now contradict the rest of Scripture. It's just a report. That said we don't necessarily or can't necessarily deduce from Scripture that in fact Joseph did practice divination. All he does is say, here's what you're going to tell them. Um, it could be that Joseph as a key figure in Egypt simply had one, like much of what it, his Egyptian culture and where he was living, it could be the case that this is, it's often been said that such a uh, type of silver cup would, would have been common in the household, just kind of a, a part of things, if you will. Um, we don't know for sure. The other thing is that it seems like in some cases God did permit aspects of this, whether it was uh, the fleece of Gideon or the uh, Urim and, and the Thummim stones. For the, there, there are times when certain things uh, it seemed that, that God allowed to be used. But I say all that just to say, I, don't, I didn't want to just pass over that one, but I don't think that there's much of a conclusion that we can draw from it. My opinion, it's something that he had that, that Joseph was kind of continuing to play the part of an, of an Egyptian in this situation, particularly using this cup. If they knew anything about the Egyptian culture and they found that cup, it's not just like, hey, you stole his little camping coffee mug, right? It would have been more of a sense of like, for them to look at Benjamin like, dude, why'd you take that? That's, you, can't <laughs> you can't steal that. That's of great value, right? And so, uh, again, we, we, don't, we don't know the answer to that for sure. So this, the steward doesn't seem to put up a fight in this situation. Heads right out in verse 6. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, 
why does my Lord say these words? So at this, the brothers re- respond, and they think, oh, man, like we, we were out of there. <laughs> we were on our way home. Everybody was with us. We're not going back there. And now he overtakes them, and they're thinking, oh, far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. They're saying, is, is you going back to the grocery store when you got a free package of fruit snacks and you saying, look, I can't keep these, <laughs> right? I wanted to keep them and eat them, but I just hit my conscience is too much. I have to return these, Walmart, right? And in many respects, they're saying, look, we brought the money back. Isn't that, isn't that proof? Some of you out there, you do that, right? I see some of the faces. You're like, yeah, that's me. Some of you with your, I'm I'm looking at my wife here. (laughs) Hey, listen, is there a, (laughs) is there a, is there, is that a bad quality? Like, like you guys, you super spiritual, honest people, right? (laughs) So here they're, they're like, they're like, we wouldn't have done this. With whomever of your servants it is found. Now, this seems a bit hasty in my opinion. Sorry, go back. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. It has to be Reuben. Um, and he said, Reuben's just all about somebody's going to die. <laughs> right? And he said, verse 10, Now also let it be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Oh, man. Now truly, here in this moment, you have to do your best to try and think what they're feeling in this moment. Like, not only are they entirely surprised by this, because all of them are thinking, wait, none of us took anything. But then as, as they go through, now it's Benjamin. Now part of them may be thinking, Benjamin, you idiot. Like the younger brother. What? what? He was just so taken by his trip to Egypt. He's like, I... But more than that, right, it has to start to register. He's the one that we have got to get back. We have to bring him home. We can't possibly allow him to be lost just like his brother. So what are they going to do? Now the old guys, in their younger years, they might have just said, take him. Go for it. We're not going to fight this battle. Dad's going to die soon. We'll be done with all this stuff. But not this time. Verse 13, then they tore their clothes. Each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So now they're all going back. They're sticking with him. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there and they fell before him on the ground. There they are, bowing before him again. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? Now, Judah here seems to take over as, as spokesman, which is probably good. And here he's saying, what, what, what can we do? Because he's also recognizing, like, like how are we going to prove this? Right now, the evidence is stacked against us. Moreover, he goes to say, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. This is interesting here, isn't it? Now, Judah here is either really just referring to the fact that ultimately we're we're guilty. Whether it's this cup or whether it's what we've been dealing with for the last 22 years that's been hanging over our heads, we're guilty. And so with this, we start to see that those with unrepentant sin who've been dealing with fear of paranoia, ultimately you get to a place where no matter what the circumstances are, you're done trying to defend yourself. You're done trying to to, to explain this away or to say, well, you, you see what happened here was, or you just come to a place where you go, We're guilt- I'm guilty, I'm guilty. And man, as hard as it is, that's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Now, certainly Benjamin, on this journey back to Egypt, was saying, 
I didn't take that cup. <laughs> like, I have to believe that Benjamin was saying, guys, I promise I didn't do this. So they're continuing probably to wrestle with what's happening. But maybe it just as Judah has said here, maybe they're, maybe they're finally at a place where they're saying, guys, we can't run from this anymore. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So Joseph here looks to Judah and perhaps all of them and, and says, look, Benjamin's going to be my slave. You guys go home. Now the next event here, I think, is what Joseph was truly hoping for. I think for Joseph, what we're going to see shortly here, even though Joseph wasn't, I don't think we can make the argument that Joseph here in these interactions was in sin. He's certainly keeping up a charade. And early on, people can, we, we can probably go like, okay, I get it. Like he's confronted, well, whoa, here's my family all of a sudden. And I'm not just going to quickly be like, hey guys, I'm going to try and figure this out. But at this point, I think it seems that Joseph is also at a point where he's like, I can't keep this up anymore. It's beginning to, to, to break him as well. And I think this is just at this moment, he's thinking this is it. What happens here is going to determine where we go. Verse 18, then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. He's saying you are super important. You're pretty much Pharaoh. Can I please just talk to you? Permission to approach the bench, your honor. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child of his old age, who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Whoa. This is what Joseph had been waiting for. Judah here demonstrating great maturity, growth. He explains the situation. And he doesn't just say, look, if we go back in this way, dad's, dad's going to die. At this point, what had Judah recognized? We're guilty. We're guilty. There's no way around that. You are a just judge. We are guilty. I'm not asking you to overlook that guilt. You wouldn't be just if you did. What I'm asking is, take me instead. Satisfy your wrath on me. You ever wonder why Jesus came from the line of Judah and not Joseph? Just a thought. Jesus, who gave his life, ransom for many, who recognized justice must be achieved. And this breaks Joseph. Finally here, Joseph sees that his brothers are changed, willing to stand with their brother, not to repeat the same mistake twice. This act of sacrifice and honesty is too much finally for Joseph. It puts him over the edge. In chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not restrain himself. 
before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. Now remember, he's still speaking through an interpreter here. They don't fully understand this. They know that at this point he's overwhelmed with emotion. He's not seeking to run away. It's beginning to overtake him. They see this man is beginning to well up. Judah's got to be thinking, something really good or really bad is about to happen, right? Because he'd gotten permission to speak to him. And so all of a sudden, he shouts out an order that they don't understand, but now the room is cleared. And it's just this man standing now before them. They're thinking, there's not going to be any witnesses. <laughs> right? He sends everybody away. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Verse 2, and he wept aloud. And this isn't just, it's not just like, oh. He, the, everybody in the house at this point, everybody who he sent away is hearing what seems to be a wailing of Joseph coming from this room, they've got to now be thinking too, like, what is happening? Again, we don't know this. This is speculation. But by this point in the game, they've probably not seen Joseph act this way before. Here, Joseph has been leading in the country for many years. He has the respect of all the people. He's exercised sound wisdom. He has been in prison. He's been in different situations. He's trusted God. He's been calm. And now over the last few weeks, this guy's lost it. He's sending these guys back and forth. He's, we're on these weird errands. He's running away. He's crying. He's coming back. Like Everybody's thinking, man, the famine's got to him. Like he can't handle it anymore. He's, he's having, he's, he's, he's got burnout, right? He's done. And now he sends everybody out and he's wailing in there. What is happening? In verse three, then Joseph said to his brothers, and I mean, what scripture tells us here is there's no like lead up. He's, he's, he's wailing. Everybody's gone. He looks at his brothers and he says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. Literally, there are no words that I could possibly use here this evening, nor any commentator I've ever come across who can quite capture what this moment would be like. This needs to be like a Steven Spielberg that might be like, <laughs> I mean, absolute shock at this point. No one expected it. No one was like, I knew it, <laughs> right? No, they're ruined in this moment. They had said he was dead. They never suspected this. Their dismay here, this word dismayed, really speaks of, it can be translated terror, shock, fear. They can't process this. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you were just truly at a loss for words? It's happened to me a couple of times. I know you can hardly believe it. But a few moments, and, and they're weird moments, right? It's like moments when you, you sort of see somebody that you know you're not, like you didn't expect to see them, and then all of a sudden you're like, where am I? And you just, wait, 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 what? And that, that has to pale in comparison to this. I mean, truly, they just can't. And so he declares to them, I'm Joseph. And there's probably like ringing in their ears at this point. Like the blood has just rushed to their heads. They're trying to make sense of all this. And then his next question, does my father still live? I mean, this is sad. I mean, to some degree here, we, we can look at Joseph's life and we can say, man, what a bummer. How hard, this and that. But this gives us some insight here. 22 years. Is my dad really alive? I want so badly to see him. No doubt it's been th thinking throughout the years, what has this done to him? How hard this must be for him? And now they had said that his father had lived, right? It wasn't long before this that they had told him, but it seems like now with, with, with them back and maybe knowing who he is, that maybe they'll get the real truth. Were they just lying? And so he asked him, in verse 4, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. Now here, this process of, of, of reconciliation is, is beginning. Okay? It's, it's definitely starting. But what we're going to see, and I know I've, I've mentioned this already, but to some degree, well, not even to some degree, what, what really is going to happen here amongst these brothers is they're going to enjoy a reunion. But perhaps in part because of the question that he asks here, is dad still alive? Up until the time in which Jacob dies, they're going to sort of think that we're in, we're in Joseph's good graces because he's alive. And that when dad dies, like, they're going to go right back to we're done for. And so as he calls them near, it, it's not going to immediately reconcile all things for them. So they came near, and then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And guys, look at this. Verse 5. 
But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Highlight that one. I don't often tell you what to do in your Bibles. Okay, I want to be sensitive to that. But that is one where I would say verse 5, highlight it, underline it. And we're going to come back to that later. We're definitely going to come back to that as we get to the end of Genesis. Because we're going to see that there's going to come a time when his brothers go, man, they're still in fear. They're still in paranoia. And they're going to go to to Joseph and they're going to tell him as much. And in that moment, Joseph is going to start to weep again. And though he doesn't expressly say it, the scripture implies it. And he's going to say, I already forgave you. I already did that. Right? It's going to point us right back to this verse. And he's going to, in, in effect, he's going to say, you've, you've continued to live in unrepentant sin. You've continued to live in fear in paranoia, and in anxiety. I've already forgiven you, but you just, you just got to receive it. You just got to know that the work has been done. He, he tells him, for, verse 6, for these two years the famine has been in the land. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a, post- a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. What Joseph here declares, and he'll say it later on, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he'll also declare here, in, in, implicit within this, is another truth that we should be well acquainted with, and that God is working all things together for good. Guys, when we continue to remain because of fear, because of paranoia, because we've convinced ourselves that somehow what it is in our life is beyond God's grace, or when we try to convince ourselves that we're okay or we're right instead of just surrendering it to God because ultimately we aren't trusting God, what we are doing, make no mistakes about it, is rejecting His grace. We're rejecting His grace. And the thing about this is, and we're going to cover this a little bit more, I, I, I shared this with our interns yesterday, and we're going to touch on this a little bit as we continue Romans uh, chapter 12 this Sunday. We'll see how far we get. I don't know that I can break away from one and two yet. But as believers, because listen, if you're, if you're an unbeliever, and we're going to close here shortly. As an unbeliever, one, we don't expect an unbeliever, shouldn't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. And for an unbeliever, the, the sin in their lives, yes, needs to be repented of, but it's unto first-time salvation. Okay? For a believer who has unrepentant sin, who's dealing with fear and paranoia and anxiety or lack of trust or whatever these things are, here's what you need to understand. God began a work in you. He began a work in you. You didn't get yourself saved. He did it. He did that work. And if he's about finishing that work because I'm pretty sure he is. There's something in the Bible about that. He who began a good work in you will what? Complete it. Well, the question I asked our interns, the question I'll ask you here tonight, and the question I'll ask you again on Sunday morning is, what do you think he's going to do in your life in order to complete that work? The answer is whatever he has to. Whatever he has to do. So then, <laughs> we can either continue to fight against that Fight against His grace. His grace that is sometimes painful, but His grace that is ultimately good, that He wants to, 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 to invade your life with, to bring that necessary change. We can keep fighting against that. And, and then maybe you'll find yourself in the midst of some circumstances where you're like, man, these things, these circumstances really are not that fun. But yet God is going, but I love you so much that I'm going to allow this because this is going to do this work, right? Or we can go, God, I'm going to trust that your plan is better, that your grace is more, that your mercies are unending. I'm going to trust it because you said it. And I'm just going to go, okay, Lord, here it is. Here is that surrender. Here is that thing in my life that I've just been holding on to and fighting against because I don't trust you 
because I've convinced myself that I'm okay, that I'm good enough, whatever it is, I'm going to go ahead and just let it go. And it might hurt, but I know that you're good and I know that you're working and I know that you're about completing what you started in me. So maybe we just ought to get this process going, <laughs> right? Joseph here is testifying to the fact that, look, it's God who was at work. Now he says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. And so he proceeds to then tell them, and we'll, we'll go ahead and stop here, we'll pick it up next week, to tell him to go, tell him everything, and tell him he can come down. I got a place for you guys. I'm going to care for you. As Joseph is to his brothers, so our Savior is to us, overjoyed, in love with us, not bitter, though many have rejected him as they rejected Joseph. He pursues, right? What a wonderful picture it is we have in this narrative. And so I would challenge us again. And this is where the Lord has us. It's going to be here for the next few weeks as we go through Genesis, and it's going to be here as we finish up Romans. And I just can't help but think that that's the Holy Spirit, that he's going to bring our Sunday studies and our Wednesday studies to a place of convergence that are intended to encourage us towards surrender, trust, and then from there, unity. Unity of the body. But that unity doesn't come unless we do those things first. And it's not until we have unity that we're able to be on display for the world in such a way as the world says, that's different. And I think we've got a taste of that here. But I also think we ain't seen nothing yet. And so for me personally, I'm excited about what potentially the next several months holds for this fellowship. I don't speak that as a prophet. Just in terms of my own study, I find myself going, oh Lord, this could be good. This could be really good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for our time together here this evening, Lord, our time in your word. What a blessing, Lord. And oh, Lord, the work that you do in our lives, Lord, the work of, of grace and of mercy. And oh, Lord, our foolishness, Lord, when we resist it, Lord, cause us, Lord, to be a people. Lord, not who, who harbor, Lord, and, and keep unrepentant sin within and allow it to have its effect on us, Lord, and, and not to be a people, Lord, who struggle to trust, Lord, and allow the effects of that to, to come upon us, Lord, but, but to be a people who say, Lord, here I am before you. Here's every part of me, Lord. I trust you, Lord. You've already taken care of it. You've already forgiven, Lord. I surrender it to you. That, Lord, you would do such a work in our lives to... to to, to bring us to a place of complete surrender before you. Um, and then, Lord, to, to begin to experience what comes from that when the body is unified in such a way. Lord, do that work here, Lord, I pray. And bless each of these here tonight, Lord, as they fall after you, Lord. Keep them safe. Encourage them. Strengthen them, Lord. May we meditate upon your word and allow you by your spirit, Lord, to, to transform our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.